Welcome back, Hemming Brainiacs, to the Hemming Brainiac List podcast, the best podcast in the multiverse. Talking about book two, chapter 31. Yes, we did just enter the multiverse. Unbloody believable was my discussion prompt. Unbloody believable. Do I need to say more? Swims to the mum for she said these lines. This woman's heart is certainly different from Madame de Renal's, even in her in their happiest moments, Madame de Renal had always doubted that his love equaled hers. I composed them once for a woman who loved me, who bored me. Julian continued to copy out the Russian letters and send them to the marshal's widow. Okay, I take it back. Julian really is a sociopath. This book is bonkers. Double smiley face. Um, <laughs> it's what happened to this book. And it's so weird that he's saved this for the last, like, I don't know, 10-15% of the book that now it's just become this this crazy I was going to say courtship but what do you even call this kind of exchange between two people I mean do you guys like each other or not you know uh, Laura Weistich says I really wasn't expecting this kind of story at the beginning yeah I mean I wasn't expecting this kind of story 30 pages ago <laughs> it's just what we've got now uh, I kind of love it though to be honest it's very entertaining chapter 32 let's move right along it's called the tiger alas why these things and not others Beaumarquet Beaumarquet an English traveller tells of the intimate terms on which he lived with a tiger he had reared it and used to pet it but always kept a loaded pistol on the table Julian gave way to his rapturous happiness only at moments when Matilda could not see the expression in his eyes, and he conscientiously carried out his duty of saying something harsh to, fr- to her from time to time. On those occasions, Matilda's intense devotion and her gentleness, which he saw with astonishment, were on the point of robbing him of all mastery of himself. He had the strength to leave her abruptly. For the first time, Matilda was in love. Life, which for her had always crawled at the speed of a tortoise, now flew along. But since her pride had to break out somewhere, she insisted on rashly exposing herself to every risk love might make her run. Julian himself was prudent, and it was only when danger arose that she refused to yield to his will, but, while submissive before him and even humble, she showed all the more arrogance towards those in the household who came near her, family and servants alike. In the evenings in the salon, with sixty people around her, she would call Julian over to talk with him for long periods to one side. One day little Tanbo settled himself near them. She asked him to go to the library to find the volume of Smollett, which deals with the revolution of 1688, and when he hesitated, she added, with an insulting hauteur that was a balm to Julian's soul, there's no need to hurry about it. Did you see the look on that little monster's face? He asked her. His uncle has put in ten or twelve years' service in this salon. If it weren't for that, I would have him shooed away immediately. Her behaviour towards Madame, sorry, towards Monsieurs de Cruznois and de Lutz, etc., though perfectly polite, was at bottom just as provocative. Matilda severely regretted all the confidences she had once made to Julian, and the more so 
in that she did not dare tell him how she had exaggerated the almost entirely innocent interests she had had in those gentlemen. Despite her very finest resolutions, everyday feminine pride persisted in preventing her from explaining to Julian it was because I was talking to you that I took pleasure in describing my weakness about not withdrawing my hand when Monsieur de Cruznard, putting his on the marble table, just brushed it. Excuse me. It's a random hiccup. <clears throat> Nowadays, hardly had one of those gentlemen been talking to her for a few moments than she would find she had a question to put to Julian and that would become a pretext to keep her, to keep him by her. She discovered that she was pregnant, and delightfully informed Julian of the fact. Now, do you doubt me? Isn't this a guarantee? I am your wife forever. The announcement... <laughs> what? <laughs> the announcement struck Julian with a profound astonishment. He found himself within an acre, sorry, within an ace, of letting the first principle of his strategy fall away. How can I be deliberately cold and offensive to this poor girl who was ruining herself for me? If she showed even the slightest air of suffering, he no longer found the resolution even on those days when the terrible voice of prudence was to be heard of making any of those cruel remarks so indispensable in his experience to the continuance of their love. I want to write to my father, said Matilda, to him one day. He is more than a father to me, he is a friend, as such I think is unworthy of you and of me to try to deceive him, if only for a moment. Great God, what? What's that you're going to? What's that you're going to do? Asked Julian, terrified. My duty, she replied, her eyes gleaming with joy. She found that she was more magnanimous than her lover, but he will throw me out in disgrace. That's his right, and one ought to respect it. I will give you my arm, and we will leave in the full light of day by the carriage entrance. Julian abashed begged her to put it off for a week. I cannot, she replied. Honour calls. I have come to see my duty. I must do it, and immediately. Well, in that case I order you to postpone it, said Julian at last. Your honour is assured, for I am your husband. This crucial step affects us both. I too am within my rights. It is Tuesday today. Next Tuesday is the day of the Duke de Retz's reception. That evening... When Monsieur de la Mole returns, the porter shall hand him the fatal letter. He dreams of nothing else but making a duchess of you. I am certain. Think of his grief. Don't you mean think of his revenge? I may be quite capable of pitying my benefactor and horrified at doing him harm, but I do not and will not be afraid of any man. Matilda submitted. This was the first time Julian had spoken authoritatively to her since she had announced the change in her condition, and never had he loved her so dearly. The tender side of his nature seized joyfully on the pretext of her condition to absolve him from having to speak cruelly to her. The confession to Monsieur de la Mole disturbed him profoundly. Was he going to be parted from Matilda, and however great the sadness with which she saw him go, should would she still be thinking of him when a month had passed? He had an, an almost equal dread of the just reproaches the Marquis might make. That evening he confessed to the second cause of his distress to Matilda, and then, led on by his love, he confessed the first as well. She changed colour. Really, said she, then six months away from me would make you miserable. Immensely. It is the only misery in the world that terrifies me. Matilda was overjoyed. Julian had played his part so thoroughly that he had succeeded in making her think that of the two, 
it was she that loved the most. The fatal Tuesday came. On his return at midnight, the Marquis found a letter so addressed as to lead him to open it himself, and then only in private. Father, all the bonds of society between us are broken. Nothing is left but those of nature. After my husband, you are and always will be the being in the world dearest to me. My eyes are filling with tears. I am aware of what pain I shall be causing you, but in order that my shame shall not be public and so that you have time to think and to act, I can no longer postpone the confession I owe you. If your affection for me, which I know to be extreme, prompts you to grant me a small pension, I will go to live wherever you choose, in Switzerland, for example, with my husband. His name is so obscure that no one will recognize a daughter of yours in Madame Sorel, the daughter-in-law of a carpenter of Verrieres. Yes, that is the name it has given me such pain to write, for Julian, I feel your anger on the face of it is so just. I shan't be a duchess, papa, but I was aware of that when I fell in love with him. For it is I who loved first, it is I who seduced him. From you I inherit too lofty a soul to let my attention be taken by what is or seems to me commonplace. It was uselessly that I, wishing to please you, thought of Monsieur de Crismois. Why did you place real merit before my eyes? You yourself told me when I returned from Hyres that this young Sorel is the only creature who amuses me. Now the poor fellow is afflicted as much as I, if that be possible, by the pain this letter will give you. I cannot prevent your being angry as a father, but love me still as a friend. Julian respected me if he sometimes engaged me in conversation that was solely on account of his profound gratitude to you, for the natural nobility of his character led him never to respond except out of duty to everything that was for so far above him. He has a lively and innate feeling for social distinctions, it was I, I confess it to be my best friend, blushing, and such a confession would never be made to anyone else. It was I who, in the garden, one day pressed his arm. Twenty-four hours from now, why should you be angry with him? My fault is irreparable. If you wish it, his assurances of profound respect and despair at having offended you shall come to you through me. You will see him no more, but I shall go to join him wherever he wishes. That is my his right. That is my duty. He is the father of my child. If your generosity inclines to grant us 6,000 francs to live on, I will take them with gratitude. If not, Julian plans to settle in Bezacon, where he will set himself up in the profession of master in Latin at literature. Whatever humble rank he starts from, I am certain he will rise. With him, I have no fears of obscurity. If there's a revolution, I am sure of a leading role for him. Could you say that of any of those who asked for my hand, they have fine estates? I cannot think that circumstance alone is a reason for admiring them. Even under the current regime, my Julian would attain a high place if he had a million and my father's patronage. Matilda, who knew her father was a man who always acted on his first impulse, had written eight pages. What is to be done, Julian said to himself during the time that Madame de la Mole, sorry, Monsieur de la Mole was reading this letter. Where lies first my duty and second my interest? What I owe to him is enormous. Without him, I would have been a minor scoundrel, but not scoundrel enough to stop me being hated and persecuted by the rest. He has made of my figure in the world. My necessary rascalities will be, firstly, less frequent, and secondly, less ignoble. That is better than if he had given me a million. I owe, I owe him that cross, too, and the semblance of diplomatic services that have put me above my equals. If he were to take up his pen and prescribe my conduct, what would he write? Julian was abruptly interrupted by Monsieur de la Mole's ancient personal valet. The Marquise demands your presence this moment, dressed or not. 
Marching along at Julian's side, the valet added in a low voice, Be very careful, Monsieur. He is beside himself. Alright, there we go. Another chapter down. Holy crap. That was eventful. Have your say on the Hemingway List subreddit. Thanks for listening. I'll see you tomorrow.